Well, we're supposed to talk about witnessing today, and if you're paying attention, I think you just got a great sermon in and of itself. Let it start with us. May we follow where the Lord leads us. Let's look to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, I pray that my words would be few and your words would go straight to our hearts and minds. I pray that you would be pleased with our discipleship, with how we follow you and how we invite others to come along on that journey. I continue to pray for our city, Lord, as turmoil continues. We trust you. Where cool heads may not prevail here on earth, you have a plan. And you've placed AIC here for a time as this. So may we be your light in these dark times. I pray that you would open our hearts to your word as we learn from the beginning of a church plant today. And Lord, give us joy in applying your word to our situations. In your name I pray, amen. I want to start this morning by reading you a text message that has to do with the candle you see on my left. You'll notice it's lit today if, if you haven't. And if you're new to our church, what a lit candle in our church means is that Someone in our church got the privilege of walking with another that accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that chose to follow Jesus. And we take great pleasure, just as the angels do, in rejoicing with those that have been adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. But some of you know that we have a few of our ladies in our church and even some of our men partner and go to the prisons from time to time. Well, on Friday, Dory Manalili headed to... Yunlong, I think, somewhere far, far away. And this was the text she sent the staff later in the day. Thank and praise God. His word is powerful. Three ladies joined. Two prayed to receive Christ. Pray they will read and eat his words. We've given them the Bible in our daily bread booklet. And then this is what one told them. One told us she kept rejecting God's invitation. But today is the day of salvation. God gives his peace, deliverance, and restoration. Praise the Lord. That should have get us excited. There we go. You see, last week I talked about one of the least favorite things for a church family to discuss, and that's idolatry and pride. Followed not too behind money would be the idea of witnessing. We like the idea of witnessing as long as someone else will do it. But today we're going to look at the life of the early church, specifically the church in Philippi, as we started this morning. So if you would, would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16? And I want you to listen carefully to how this church got started and pay attention specifically to the characters you see described. Because the great thing about the Bible is it never shields us from the reality of humanity that God was using to change the world. Because time and again, we see people broken, suffering, or in just difficult places, yet God uses them. So picking up in Acts chapter 16, verse 11 is where we'll start. Paul has just received a vision that he isn't going to be going where he thought he was, and that he should instead head to Macedonia. In verse 11, he says, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of, the, of that district of Macedonia. 
We stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled, the ESV says annoyed, that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight... Remember, this is in prison. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came, off, came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At, the, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Lord, guide our thoughts as we look into your word today. Amen. Well, we're going to talk about the church in Philippi today. But you see, a church just doesn't start and have a couple hundred people or even 20 people. A church is always started with individuals. And we like to think that if we've got an all-star team, when you go to plant a church, something I'm passionate about around the world, that you pick certain people with specific goals, with specific skill sets and specific abilities to go plant that church. And you also you choose specific locations. Philippi would have been that for the missionary superstar that was the Apostle Paul. 
Okay, Philippi was a leading city in Macedonia. It was wealthy. It was well seen in the Roman Empire. In fact, many people went to Philippi to retire from service in the Roman government and military so that they could be comfortable and enjoy life. It was a great place to live. And it was an influential city, both financially, uh, ethnically, uh, and in every way, governmentally and academically. It was a good city. And that's where Paul finds himself being led by the Spirit to go. Today, I won't say it specifically constantly, but don't forget that every action that Paul, Luke, Timothy, and Silas committed was guided by God first. So when we give credit and when we say Paul spoke in this way, every time he spoke, he was led by God. Don't forget that. Underline it, write it down, note, because everything that happened to create a movement at work in Philippi was God's doing. From the moment of when God started to send them to Philippi, they wanted to go one place. God says, no, Macedonia is your target. And specifically Philippi. But then the neat thing is, is that we are brought face to face with the gospel in lives of real human beings. Remember, if you will, that the gospel is powerful. We know that God's word spoken through his people that live out this and empowered by the Holy Spirit can change everything. It can work in mighty ways. It can set people free from demonic oppression as we'll talk about today. It is also transformative. It changes lives. Jesus changes our life. The good news of Jesus Christ should give us hope that goes beyond our hope in finances, as we talked about last week, our hope in our family, our hope in our stuff, our hope in our jobs. Our hope is in Jesus Christ who has changed everything and drawn us in to a place of relationship and restoration with him. And finally, as we're going to see time and again this morning, the gospel is to be lived out. Jesus Christ doesn't just say, believe me, but then he says, go, obey what I said if you love me and make disciples of all nations. Don't keep it to yourself. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and go all over the world with my name, taking me with you wherever you go. The gospel is to be lived out. And that's at the heart of what it means to witness. Now, when we talk about witnessing, a couple of things happen. First, some of you will raise your hands and say, Mike, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Neither do I. But you know what? I still have to tell my friends about Jesus. And I can trust the results with the Lord. But if I am unfaithful in telling them about Jesus, I have not been obedient to God's word. Now, some, they say tree and people come to Jesus. I have not that found that to be true with me. Pastor Mark, our previous pastor, he could lead anybody to Jesus. There's some of you in this hall that I'm amazed at how you find ways to connect people to the story of God. The point is, we tell God's story and show people how he's at work in our lives. And that is to be powerfully transformative. Why do we do it? Why do we witness? Because as you look at our hearts, we see this. Oops, I skipped a slide here. In our hearts, if you look to where we talked about last week, we have set apart Christ as Lord, correct? 
Well, today we're going to look at the journey of how that began with Lydia, with an oppressed slave girl, two vastly different economic situations and life situations. And then we look at a jailer, a prison guy that, as you'll see, was actually pretty good at his job and not in ways that are complementary. But each of them came to the place that Paul and Peter and so many before them had come, that in their hearts they'd set apart Christ as Lord. And in so doing, if we look just at the life of Paul, what's amazing here, that Paul gave his life to Jesus sacrificially. He's not had an easy go of it. The guy right at the beginning of his ministry in Philippi was flogged, beaten, and tortured. That's not fun. And time and again, he was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by a snake. All of these happened to this guy. Yet here we see that Paul followed the example that Peter wrote about later on when he said, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. How could Paul and his team talk to a lady like Lydia? One, guys didn't often talk with ladies in that setting. Didn't happen. Two, how could Paul know when and what to say to a young girl that was possessed by a demon? How could Paul know how to respond to a jailer that was ready to commit suicide? Well, in his heart, he had set apart Christ as Lord. And when the opportunity came, he was ready to give a reason for the hope that he had in Christ Jesus. His life preached the gospel. I don't know about you, but I would like you to think for a moment of getting stuck in jail. Is the first thought that comes to mind that you're going to be singing hymns and praising God? If you say yes, I don't believe you. Because it's not mine. Maybe you're holier than me and you probably are. I'm quite confident of that. But for most of us, if we're thrown in jail, praising God and singing hymns to him isn't our first response. Something along the lines of, woe is me. Why does bad stuff always happen to me? That's going to be our response. But God, even in allowing Paul and Silas to get stuck in jail, had a plan to plant a church in a place called Philippi. How did he do it? Well, I want to talk about Lydia today. To understand Lydia, we have to understand what we refer to when we talk about witnessing. In the legal sense, a witness is one who sees, hears, or knows by personal presence and perception. In other words, I just witnessed a morning of singing great praise to God through the dance team, and wow, that was so powerful and amazing. Through having a trumpet join our worship team today, loved it and was blessed miraculously by everybody, not just the trumpeter Richard, but the whole team. I was blessed. I witnessed that. And I want to tell my friends, hey, you got to come to church because the Spirit of the Lord is here and you got to worship God with us at AIC. I want to testify to what he's doing. That's what we do. But in, in Christian circles, it goes beyond. And what you've got here is it's an open profession of one's religious faith through words or. And I would actually scratch out the word or there. The dictionary says or. I would prefer and. 
and actions. Our words and our actions preach the gospel. Paul saw that. He's sitting in jail and all of the other prisoners are silent and not complaining. Why? Because in the worst of times, Paul and Silas were living the gospel message. You've heard me talk about PMS before, poor Mike syndrome. They didn't get stuck in that. They didn't get stuck in poor Paul and Silas syndrome. They said, God, you're at work in this situation, in this time. And I'm going to praise and rejoice you. And I'm going to trust that you're going to work where things go from here. And in so doing, even before he was in prison, three lives began to be changed. And a church was built on a rock. A church that later becomes the apple of Paul's eye. The one he is so proud of. If you read the book of Philippians, you'll see that that is the church that Paul has nothing negative to say about it. Words like thanksgiving and joy and partner. Those are the words he used. In fact, Matt Chandler, a famous preacher, calls Philippians the book of coffee cup verses. Because they're the verses in Philippians that you want to put on your coffee cups to encourage you. That's the church in Philippi and how Paul could say honestly, I thank my God every time I remember you, the saints and congregation in Philippi. But it started with a lady. We should be, thank you. So often we, the church, think that ladies have their place over in women's ministry and nowhere else. And God's word shows us that is just blatantly not true. And so we get introduced to a woman named Lydia. Okay, let me tell you about Lydia. One of those listening was Lydia. You know that. A dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. Okay, important. First, she was not ethnically local. She was from Asia. She was ethnically Asian. Can you relate? Many of us, us, not me, you can. But she'd moved. She was an expat. Okay, you with me so far? It's pretty cool, huh? God started a church through an expat. (laughs) International churches go. Good. Now, not only that, but she was a dealer in purple cloth. Purple, the color of royalty, the color of glory, and expensive. Very hard to find purple dye in that day and age. So if you could deal in purple, you were doing something very fancy and expensive. I am not a fashionista. I learned that word as I was preparing for this message, but it means someone that is very in touch with fashion. But I heard stories years ago that we have someone connected to our church through their father that is famous for creating just amazing wedding gowns and dresses. And when Barney says, he'll make a dress for you, it's like, wow, okay? That was what it was like to be connected with Lydia She was at the top of the fashion world. She had an office in Philippi, a fashion house most likely, where she sold her goods. But she was also wealthy enough to be from another place. She was an expat. So this was a successful, powerful woman. But that's not the whole story because it goes on. She was a worshiper of God. She was not Jewish. She was a Gentile. Fancy way of saying pagan. But yet she was seeking to worship God and follow him as best she could. What would that have meant for her? Well, she was following the teachings of the Torah. 
Now, you need to understand that when Jews in the diaspora, the dispersion, when the Jews got spread all over the world, in order for there to be a synagogue, which is where Paul would normally go when he started preaching and started trying to plant a church that was based on Jesus Christ, not on the law, he would seek out the synagogue. But to have a synagogue, you had to have 10 men that were Jewish and following God devoutly. That was not present in Philippi. So when Paul and his team begin walking around, they don't find 10 men in a house of prayer worshiping God, but having missed Jesus, they find ladies having basically a glorified Bible study. And Paul doesn't look at them and say, well, they're women, they're worthless, which women are not worthless. Please don't mistake that. No, he sits down with them. And we're told in the text that he taught them. And Lydia was so moved, not by Paul. Notice what the scripture says. The Lord opened her heart. He has to be at work in salvation. I don't care how good a salesman you are. You can't talk somebody into life-changing gospel transformation. The spirit of the Lord has to do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Okay? And the Lord worked in the heart of Lydia as Paul engaged both her heart and mind. And I was trying to think of how do we explain that? Well, this is a famous woman that would have had offices in today's world, like on Petter Street, she would have had a shop or in the IFC or Elements or famous malls. But she was a woman that clearly appreciated nice things. And when she took in what God was giving, she turned around and offered it to her house. C.S. Lewis basically says that when you hear something beautiful, you have to share it, right? Well, I want you to consider something that happened with Lydia. When she heard it, it reminded me of one of my favorite pieces of classical music. I'm not going to tell you anything about it, but I want to share it with you because it's my favorite and because it reminds me of new life. And when you listen just for a minute, I think that it's just worth telling other people. You just got to sit down and take it in and feel the power of what was written. So listen carefully to this and put yourself in Lydia's shoes as she's hearing the glory and the art of who God is. Now we come back to Lydia. Lydia was not around when Vivaldi wrote the music. Lydia wasn't around when Candida Thompson and that Philharmonic 
performed the piece. But I have to think that as Lydia heard the gospel presentation, her heart welled up inside with the beauty and the grace and the love of God in such a way that she had to tell other people. Because what do we read later on? That her whole household came to faith. Not because one person professed and therefore all were saved. That's not what God's word is teaching there. But I believe Lydia was so transformed. And we see this when we get to the letter in Philippi. And we see this in 2 Corinthians when we hear more about the church in Philippi. She was transformed. And as C.S. Lewis says, when you hear and when you observe and when you're part of something beautiful, you want to share it. I want to sit down with all of you right now and not preach and just listen to Vivaldi. Or I want to have the worship team come back out and sing and praise the Lord so that we can just sit and take in the power and the glory of the creativity that he has gifted these teams with. But I want to do it in a way that says praise the Lord for gifting them because it's him at work in lives. Lydia, from the top end of the economy, yet still a woman, in the eyes of culture there, was the first convert of the church in Philippi. Isn't that amazing? And God spoke to her by showing her her heart. She was seeking. She was looking for God. She was having a Bible study. We know her heart was eager and her mind was hungry. So God spoke through Paul to her heart and mind. That is vastly different to the next person we meet. You see, after we've met her, we come face to face with this girl, the oppressed slave girl. Go back and read the Old Testament and what, how, do we, how does God feel about oppression? You heard us talk about it the last couple of weeks. Does God approve of oppression anywhere in the world? Absolutely not. Time and again, we, the church, are told to look after the oppressed, to look after the least of these, to look after the aliens in this land because God's heart is for them. And here we have this oppressed slave girl. She's a local. She's not an expat and she's a slave. And she earned a great deal of money, not for herself. She didn't see a dime, but for her owners by fortune telling. And this girl followed Paul and the rest of us. This is Luke writing here. Shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. This is reminiscent of when Jesus encountered demon-possessed people that said, I know who you are. In the same way, the demon in this girl was testifying exactly who God was and what the message was these men were coming to proclaim. But she is oppressed. The words in the Greek basically lead us to believe she was crazy. And I don't know about you, but I don't think Paul sat down and gave an apologetic discourse on how to deal with her craziness. We don't see that in this passage. In fact, we see Paul losing patience. This makes me feel good about myself. Because sometimes I have lost my patience. Maybe you have as well. But what does he do? She kept this up for many days. So Paul continues to teach. Likely what's happening now 
If you're following the pattern, Paul is beginning to disciple Lydia and her household and teach others about who Jesus is. And he's welcoming them now into a deeper walk. They've been baptized. They've been identified with the person of Jesus Christ. They are now followers of the way, Christians. And so he's teaching them deeper things. And this girl shouting at the top of her lungs, annoyingly, crazily, and disturbingly screaming every time she sees them. And Paul, as many translations say, became annoyed or so troubled, he turned around to the spirit. And again, this isn't Paul in his own strength. Look at what he says. He doesn't say, do this because I am Paul and I'm awesome. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to get out of her. Just as Paul engaged Lydia's heart and mind, we see that this girl had a spiritual problem. This girl was possessed, she was in bondage, and she was broken, and she was suffering. But Mike, I can't relate to somebody that's demon-possessed today. Well, have you read Romans? Paul talks about the bondage of fear, the bondage of sin, the bondage of many things. Last week, we discussed the bondage of idolatry. We may not be demon-possessed, but many of us wrestle with very real issues in our lives that only God can deliver us from. These are spiritual problems. No psychiatrist can save you from a spiritual problem. Only the work of the Holy Spirit by the power of Jesus Christ can save us and set us free. You see, the amazing thing is here, as Paul engaged her, he commanded that spirit to leave her in the name of Jesus, and we know that demons flee when the name of Jesus is spoken. But some of us are so bound by fear that we're afraid to call on the name of Jesus for help. Some of us are so bound by our past that we're afraid to accept the grace and identity that Christ has welcomed us into by his blood. And the gospel message here was good news to this oppressed girl because this oppressed girl was in bondage both as a slave and as one who was possessed by a demon. She couldn't fix herself. She needed help. And Paul even being annoyed, was worked and used by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, set the girl free. And who God has set free is free indeed. And she becomes a part of the family of God. A life transformed by a witness that deals with the spiritual condition of a heart. Lydia was captured through her mind's and heart's understanding of God, and this girl was set free from demonic power through the work of the Holy Spirit in the name of Christ. But we've got another character to talk about, and that's the Roman jailer. And often when we talk about the Roman jailer, we get right to the part of the story that says he came to Jesus, and we don't take seriously how good this guy was at his job. So I'd like you to, to remember something. If you open up your Bibles, it's not on the screen. But what the Bible teaches us is that actually the jailer was told after they were beaten and flogged and tortured to then take them in and keep them safe. 
that does not, to me, in my understanding of any language, involve torture in how I understand it. But what happens is when the Greek comes translated into English, we use the word stocks. And many of us, especially if we've got a Western bent, we think of people that are kind of hung out and tortured. They're basically having fruits and vegetables thrown at them as they're in stocks like this. That was not what stocks were like in a Philippian jail way back when. A guy that could put you in stocks was a gifted torturer. Because the goal of putting you in stocks, of binding your feet and your ankles in such a way that your body was so contorted that you would cramp up. Any of you ever been cramped before? Well, imagine being stuck in that position on purpose and you can't move your way out of it. Now, I can't do it, but I've got a friend in the church that's a massage therapist and he's done some things to me that make me feel like I'm being tortured. But the good news is there's relief at the end of that. There was no hope of relief here. The jailer's job was to make life miserable for the prisoner. And this guy was good. He was a retired Roman soldier and he seemingly took pride in making sure those prisoners knew they were prisoners. Now, keep in mind what Paul and Silas did as their bodies are contorted in such a way that they are in immense amounts of pain. They sang hymns and gave praise to God. Their lives were a knit witness of God at work. Again, when I am in discomfort, I am a man that knows discomfort well. I have broken 13 bones and spent plenty of time in hospitals. And not one of those broken bones have I ever thought to the Lord, praise God this just happened. That has never come to my mind. Later on, I thank him for what I've learned about the situation. And I've learned many things from that. But in that moment... That first thought of mine has never been, oh, God, you're so gracious. But for Paul and Silas, that's exactly what they did. In their torture, in their pain, they praised God. And the jailer and everybody in that jail observed that. The prisoners were quiet. Have you ever, you know, we have some in our church that do prison ministry now. And if they go into a prison, a prison is rarely quiet. People have lots to talk about. And if there's a visitor, all sorts of things are said about them, to them, and whatnot. But in this prison, in this jail, they were silent. And they were listening to Paul and Silas testify about the person and the miraculous work of Jesus Christ. And then, oh yeah, something happened. An earthquake happened that miraculously was aimed in just such a way through a physical occurrence that all of those stocks came off. Now, I know that could happen anywhere, and we could try to explain it away as just a physical coincidence, but don't think for a moment God wasn't in that earthquake. And I'll tell you this, that if I am a prisoner in a prison anywhere, and the earth shakes, and the doors open, I ain't staying. I am on my way out, because I'm taking that as a sign that I have been set free, and I'm running as fast as my little legs will take me. And instead, we find ourselves observing an entire jail that stayed put. And the Roman jailer that was living in Philippi did what every man with a moral compass that is based on honor, that is based on a code of a soldier, would do. 
He had failed in his responsibility, so he was going to take his own life because it was gone anyway. So either the government's going to kill him or he could kill himself. And in his mind, the honorable thing to do was save the government the headache and hassle. So he would have taken his own life. That's the scenario we find ourselves with this third church member. But God. All the prisoners are staying put. And you hear, wait! Woke you up. (laughs) Don't do it. Every one of us is still here. The man stirred to the core, the professional torturer is now standing in front of a group of prisoners, only two of which we know believed in Jesus before this moment. And all he could say is, what must I do to be saved? And Paul, again, he doesn't go into a long didactic discourse on every step that goes into salvation. He says, believe in Jesus and you and your household will be saved. And that's enough for the jailer because he's just seen a bunch of miracles happen at one time. One, earthquake. Two, prisoners praising God while being tortured. Three, stocks fall off. Four, prisoners stay put. Five, him being saved from his own hand by prisoners that are staying put. That is God at work. This man, the jailer, was touched by his moral compass. You see, his moral compass was on honor and God shifted it to grace. Isn't that amazing? This man knew that everything in his life was about what he'd achieved for the Roman government. And here, all of the sudden, is this guy, Paul, talking about Jesus, who'd already been crucified, and there were rumors that he'd come back to life. And they're singing praise to him. And in the process, there's an earthquake. And Paul says, you got to believe in him and he will set you free from your past. A professional torturer, in my humble opinion, has a past. His job was to make lives painful and miserable. So how does he get to the place where he and his entire family are baptized and welcomed in the family of God? He comes face to face with the life-altering, life-transforming good news of Jesus Christ. This says your identity is in me. All of your actions, they're gone. They've been forgiven. You are set free just as the slave girl. You are brought in. Your mind can accept and your heart can see what I have done and your life is now hid in me. You are not known by your torture. You are known but why, by what I went through for you that you might be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And the Philippian jailer was set free. And nobody said amen. Thank you going to leave that one out there because we've got these three stories, these three lives, these three different positions. We've got Lydia, famous designer, wealthy, lives in the right neighborhood, just wanting to know God. So she goes down by the river to seek him out with other ladies. We've got a demon-possessed, oppressed slave girl that doesn't even know what she's saying. And Paul sets her free through the power of the Holy Spirit and she comes to know Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior.
We've got a professional human rights violator in every sense of the word. We get all up in arms today about human rights violation and this guy's job was to break your human rights. Because once you're a prisoner, you don't have any. And this man sat before them and said, what must I do to be saved? Yet today in our church, we get kind of comfortable and we forget the music of the joy of the Lord that's changed our lives. The grace that transformed the Philippian jailer is forgotten on us because we've gotten comfortable or we've become to identify with work, with money, with family, and we've pushed God over to the side and we've no longer set Christ apart as Lord. And so when Mike gets up and says we should all allow our lives to be a living testimony of God at work, we say, well, I I don't have the words to say. And to that today, I want to do something that used to be a horrible, horrible thing for me as a child because I could never say no. I want to dare you. I want to dare you to tell people about Jesus. I want to dare you to obey God's word. How many people in the Bible said, I can't speak? And God said, great, that's right where you need to be. Think of Moses. Let my people go. Now, Aaron came along for the ride, and how'd that go? God was fully ready to empower Moses with every word he needed. Stephen, a young guy, new in the faith, could give the most powerful sermon likely ever written and then be stoned, and as he is being killed, praises God? And you're telling me God can't give you the words to say to your neighbor, your employer, your friend, your family member? Baloney! It's just not there. God's word tells us, try me. Because throughout the planting of the Philippian church, you know what we see? God at work in lives. Not Mike at work in a slick presentation. We should already know God's word. We should study and know what to say and be prepared to know what we believe. But we're also going to trust the Holy Spirit. When that, when that opportunity comes, he will empower us just as he empowered Paul. And he'll give you the right words to say. Jesus promised us as much when he promised the Holy Spirit. So then how do we prepare ourselves to be a witness? Because I don't know about you, but it can be scary to think that it's my job to tell other people about Jesus. Well, the first thing we've got to understand is that Jesus, not us, takes strangers and makes them a family. I want my family to get bigger. Physically, not so much. Not right now. Three is good. That's a lot. Maybe someday. I'm not saying either or. But for right now, I'm very content. But my spiritual family, oh, I pray that God would expand our horizons. I pray so much that my friends, who I could name by name, would come to know the reason for the hope that I have in Christ Jesus. And they would be transformed. And they would be part of my family because my family is God's family. And I've been adopted as much of a punk as I am. God said, you're mine. He said it to Lydia. He said it to a slave. And he said it to a torturer. You're mine. So what do we do? Well, a gospel witness, one that is so possessed by the power of the good news of Jesus Christ, can't shut up. That's why I get so excited about these messages because it's the good news. How do we do it? Well, first, we've already mentioned it. We're going to let God guide us. I don't dare you to go do it on your own. I dare you to say, God, 
help me. First thing, you see that before they even got to Philippi, Paul is given a dream and told to go. And when God guides, Paul doesn't say, I'm busy, I got a thing. (laughs) Paul goes where God leads. What about you? Will you go where God leads, even if it's inconvenient? Even if they might reject you? Because remember, when we witness, we're not ultimately being received or rejected. It's Jesus. We are messengers. That's our job. The Holy Spirit is responsible for the results. We are responsible for the words. You with me so far? Then, we got to keep our eyes open. If I am getting ready to plant a church, which I hope we do in the next five years. I'm not running away from that, and I will continue to say it. That is our goal. But if I'm looking for an all-star team of church planners, a demon-possessed lady isn't going to be my first-round pick. Neither is a guy that was a professional torturer. Lydia, yeah, I could see her. Pretty, good, successful, yeah. Got money to help save the church, to support the church, yes. Even would offer me a place to stay, cool. Lydia, I get The other two, God got. And even in so doing, in planting the church, you know what Lydia was used to do? Provide housing for Paul and his team. God used her wealth for his glory and gave Paul a season of comfort, which he was no longer used to because of his vocation, going into the most difficult parts of the world and planting churches. But his eyes were open. He recognized women studying the Torah. And he sat down and he told them about Jesus. Said it's more than the law. It's freedom in Christ. Then he was ready. This team of Luke, of Timothy, of Silas, and of Paul. Each time the prompt was given. They met Lydia. They told her about Jesus. When the time was right... Even though he was annoyed, he still spoke the name of Jesus Christ to the oppressed slave girl. It got him in a ton of trouble and he had to know that was coming. You take away someone's source of income, they're not going to be happy with you. If you've ever had to let, let someone go of a job, that's never a pleasant thing because they have no source of income. And so he was put in prison, but that didn't stop Paul from speaking the name of Jesus Christ, nor did he stop the girl. But while she was being possessed, we're not told that he ever told her to stop telling who Jesus was, are we? No, Paul was ready. And when the time came, he sat in a prison cell. And in my word said, have you met Jesus? And the Philippian jailer's life was changed. The other interesting thing and being ready and then also telling the truth. I can illustrate from a friend of mine. Uh, You know I traveled to Kolkata earlier this year and was struck by many things. But when Melissa and the kids and I went on a holiday in Thailand, we met uh, two young ladies that serve in Kolkata full-time and have lived there learning uh, the, the local language and dialects and are just putting themselves in very difficult, dangerous places. Well, one of them blogs, and she's a music therapist by trade that now counsels women that have been stuck in the sex industry by women that are infected with AIDS and by children that have no hope. But she chronicles her journey for us here. Her name is Alice, and she calls this a little story about inconvenience and a big story about readiness. 
I got up early and went to the ticket office to purchase train tickets. Having found my way there by bus, I saw a sign say closed. Go to Kolagat. Seeing indeed that it was closed with no lights or fans or personnel, I asked the security guard who sent me to Kolagat. Having asked, borrowed pens, filled in forms, and waited in line for 30 minutes, the woman at the counter tells me I can't buy tickets here. Does that not sound like Hong Kong? I need to go back to the ticket office where I came from. Disgruntled, I confirm with her that actually it's the next building to the closed office where tourists can buy train tickets. And remember, she's trying to get on an Indian train. So it would have been very full and she's trying to find one ticket. An hour later, I arrive at the correct office. Half her day's gone. I see around 50 people waiting in line and my heart sinks. I pick up another form and my number is 48. There at number five. My resolve is low and my sense of wanting to bless others in this place is quite lacking. It'll be ours. I resolve to be practical, to use the time and do some emails from my phone before conversations strike up with those there. I'm the only white foreigner present. It seemed most were from Bangladesh and traveling for healthcare reasons. It was moving to here. I eventually get a seat two hours into my wait and start doing Bangla work, rewriting my last essay in grammar practice. The woman next to me, or should I say squashed up on the seat next to me, looks over and corrects a spelling mistake and chats about what I've written. Then our conversation progresses, because everybody likes it when you're reading over their shoulder. Over the next two hours, as we wait, we chat. She's 20 years old, studying in Bangladesh. We chat about many things from the Bangla language, learning to food, her Muslim faith, and what it means to her, her family, my family, whether I'll ever get married one day. We notice the arguments or heated discussions around us and the volume of people. In the midst of it all, she, softly spoken, had an alluring way of looking that convinced me she was really enjoying our waiting experience together. My love and laughter grow again. Later, two more hours into our chat, so that's six hours that have taken place in this, I inquire about the health issue she'd mentioned. She lifted her veil and revealed a tumor growth on her ear. Close to tears, she explained she can hear fine and isn't in pain. I admire her courage and resolve. Yet I sense her drinking in something from our conversation that's not familiar to her. I share more about Jesus and the amazing grace he has shown me and what he means to me. She asks me to pray. I ask if I can pray now, just sitting in the room and chatting in prayer. Shyly, she asks, here? Okay. So I pray, holding her hand. Time stands still. Shortly after, number 48 is called, and I get my ticket swiftly, which by this point seems completely insignificant now. I say goodbye, leaving different to the, five hour, the six hours previously, left more blessed by my being so-called inconvenienced and shaped by the blessing of the relationship. I'm asked to be ready, ready to really hear. Being a witness for Jesus Christ means you will be inconvenienced. But in that, will you be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus? Or will your response be this? Mike, you were supposed to be done 10 minutes ago. I'm ready for lunch. (laughs) 
Sadly, most of us would be the second, not what Alice learned. Are we ready to tell the truth? Notice Paul doesn't run away from the reality of the good news of Jesus Christ. That means we've got to deal with sin. We've got to deal with oppression and we've got to deal with reality. But he spoke the truth. Not only that, but Paul writes in Corinthians that we are to be all things to all people in hopes of saving some. You know why I get frustrated in churches when we say what we can't do? Because we lack faith. The minute we tell God we can't do something because how he's made us, we say we doubt how he's made us. And it's just not to be found in the scriptures. Because Paul, an amazing jerk, if you really look at his life, the guy was blunt as all get out. The guy didn't have a gentle bone in his body until he was transformed by the Lord is the one that says, do it with gentleness and respect. Peter says the same. And Peter was a loud mouth like me. And Peter says, be able in or Paul says, in season and out of season, preach the word. And he says, I want to be all things to all people at all times in hopes of saving some. So yeah, there might be a person that you have a hard time with. Good. Have fun. And let God work through you. In fact, go look for them. Go, let them be difficult. And trust God to stir in their hearts and yours for such a time as this. Because every one of us has difficult people in our lives. But what if we said, Lord, my life is yours. Even with that person. I will tell of your great work forever. And finally, to play on words here, be driven by Christ's passion. First, the passion of the Christ, the death, resurrection, and subsequent ascension and life of Jesus Christ should drive us because his life, his death, his atoning sacrifice for us invites us into a fixed and restored relationship with God for all eternity. That should drive us. It should drive us to where other people think we're crazy because we're so focused on Jesus we won't stop talking about it. But second, the passion of Jesus was to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus says that, I came to seek and save that which was lost. Now, I like playing hide and seek. And when I was a youth pastor, we used to play this game called sardines. The goal of the game is to hide. And when you hide, there is one hider in sardines. But the great thing about it is when you, everybody else seeks, and it's such a wonderful spiritual metaphor. Everybody else seeks that one person that is hidden. And when they find them, they stay hidden with them. They hang out. They're part of the in crowd. Now we have another man in our church that is world famous for his hiding ability. Other than at Megabox, in a shower in Ikea, he was never found. No matter where we played, this young man was miraculous at keeping people away from finding the truth of who he was. We must not be like him. We must hide in such a way that our lives are only hid in Christ. And so that the world sees him in us and rejoices. And even if they want to criticize us, they're drawn to us like that woman was drawn to Alice. Because there was something different. And if you know the guy that's so good at hiding, you'll know people are drawn to him as well. But we're driven by passion 
to seek and save that which was lost. You tell me you're afraid to witness, I say, great. How about you let God do it through you? Lord, make us ready. Guide our hearts and minds. Keep our eyes open to you. Help us to speak your truth, being all things to all people, confident in you, not in ourselves, and driven by the finished work of your son, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would bring disciples into our midst whose lives have been transformed by the grace and greatness of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.